Wow. Good to be with you in the house. Good to be with you online if you're joining us via the interwebs. For the last few weeks, my wife Julie and I have been cleaning our house. And I don't mean just kind of like tidying up and straightening. I mean cleaning it out top to bottom, stem to stern, closets, cabinets, the attic. And just as an aside, I have a little bit of a confession to make when I tell you I hate cleaning. I hate it. That's why we don't do it very often. But we're doing it, and this past week, our efforts were so richly rewarded. I climbed up into the attic and pulled down boxes that we had not been through in decades. Decades. And in this one particular box... I found an absolute treasure trove of love letters that Julie and I had written to each other more than 30 years ago. Now, I know. Now, I thought about kind of telling you about them and this, that, and the other, but I've decided to kind of take it to the next level, and I have permission from Julie to do this. I'm going to I'm going to actually read part of these letters to you. Now, I'm not reading all of them. (laughs) These two excerpts were actually taken from letters that we wrote to each other the year, during the year in which we were engaged to be married. This was Julie. Actually, I'm going to read you mine first. Julie's is better. (laughs) I wrote this to Julie on Tuesday, March 26th, 1991. How many of you were not alive in 1991? Can I just see a show of hands? That's cool. That's all right. Dear Julie, it's a good start, isn't it? Dear Julie, I'm getting the urge to call you, so I found the nearest pen and pad and decided to squelch the urge. Now, for those of you, like, let me explain that. We were trying to save money for our honeymoon so we weren't making long-distance phone calls. I know some of you are wondering, what are you holding? This is called paper. (laughs) Years and years ago, people used to write on paper to send messages to one another in a thing called the mail. (laughs) Seeing you Sunday night made it just that much more obvious how desperately I need to be with you just to share your company. Babe, I know you're working hard in school, trying to graduate as quickly as possible, doing as well as you are. In our relationship, trying to make it work over time and distance. We, we dated long distance the whole time we were dating. It's important that you know how much I appreciate it all, and I appreciate you so much more than all you do. I really am aware of how blessed I am. You're a great pastor's wife-to-be. Thank you for everything that you are for me. I love you with everything. This is Julie's to me. Mac. Did y'all notice I said, dear Julie? Mac. Just 12 days from today. She wrote this less than two weeks before we got married. July 29th, 1991, just 12 days from today, just 288 hours, just 17,280 minutes, 
By the time you receive this note, it will be even less time. I can't believe it's so soon. We've talked about this and prayed about this and planned for this for so long. We will be together forever in the same town, in the same home, in the same... Anyway. (laughs) I'm trying to decide what all I need to pack. I'm taking a lot of film. I'm so excited. I have to make a big Walmart trip too. So much has changed. I love this. I know I'm just babbling. I do that sometimes. I'm not sure if you've ever noticed. (laughs) I love you so much. I can't wait to spend an entire week with you in St. Croix. We're getting married. See you Friday. Love, Julie. I look at these letters, and I, I can't help but think, what did we not know? There was so much, so much. We had no idea about working through disagreements in marriage. We had no idea about raising children, starting a church, managing a budget together, on and on and on. But... I think these love letters, with the benefit of 30 years, is an amazing reminder of just what it was that God was up to when he called us together. I really think that the last 30 years has been Julie's and my grand but imperfect attempt to build a life around what was being expressed in those love letters. I think, I think love letters are are the closest human parallel that we can find to understanding what it was that God intended when he gave us the Bible. I believe that the Bible is God's gift of a love letter to humanity. It's in the Bible that God reveals himself. God reveals his heart and his hopes, his his plans, his, his expectations for us in a relationship with him because that's really the whole reason he created us was for relationship. And as a good God, he has given us this book, the Bible, as a love letter to understand him, to understand ourselves, to understand this world in which we live. And and so that's, that's how we're kicking off this new teaching series, The Bible for All It's Worth. Now, I have to admit to you right up front, I have flat out stolen the title for this sermon series. Stole it. I mean, red handed. When I was in seminary, I was assigned a book written by two seminary professors from other seminaries called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, an incredible, incredible book. But we're appropriating that title because as a church family, it's it's my prayer as the pastor of, of the Lake Hills Church family that you and I 
would love the Bible, that we would love Scripture for all its worth. I don't mean all that it is worth. I mean all of its inherent worth, all of the value, all of the weight, all of the significance that God has placed in his word. And so I will tell you that this message series is kind of us as a church family planting our flag and saying, this is who we are. This is how we will be from now on. Because let's be honest, you and I live in a world, in a day and an age, it is tough for the good old Bible. I mean, it is a tough, tough time. Just think with me for a second, just the blink of an eye, two generations ago. I mean, that's nothing in terms of cultural shifts. Just two generations ago, Billy Graham could fill a football stadium, many of whom the people there were, were believers and they already convinced, but many of them were not. And in this environment, Billy Graham could proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And as he would do that, he would say frequently in that deep, resonant, North Carolina baritone, the Bible says, and an entire ocean of people would nod their heads knowingly. Whether they followed Christ or didn't follow Christ, the vast majority of people acknowledged the validity of the Bible. They, they held that there really was something different about this book than any other book that was written. But in the day in which you and I live, not so much. People who are maybe not yet followers of Christ, when they think of the Bible, if they think of the Bible, they, they don't give it any more validity or any more weight than Aesop's fables or some other moralistic mythology that you could read. By the same token, a lot of us who are Christians, a lot of us who do follow Christ and do believe that this is God's word, a lot of us, if, if we were really pushed, we would be hard-pressed to be able to articulate why we believe what we believe. And so this teaching series that we are starting together today is a monster, monster deal. I, I think it's got incredible potential for everyone. You may not be a follower of Christ. You may be somebody who's, who's checking things out. You're kind of kicking the tires of the Jesus thing. First of all, we are thrilled that you're here. We, we want this to be a safe place to hear a dangerous message. But I think there's something here for you, and I hope you understand the heart behind this series. I hope you understand that, that we're coming alongside with you. We want to we grow and explore and explain with you for those of us who are followers of Christ, especially those who are maybe of a younger generation than those who were writing love letters in the 90s, early 90s. Man, I, I wanna, I, I hope and I pray through this series that you are encouraged, you are affirmed in your faith. I think this is part of the reason we lose so many of our students and our, our kids when they go off to college. The first time they're in a college classroom and a professor just absolutely rips and mocks and ridicules things of faith. 
spirituality, scripture, because we haven't taught our kids why they immediately believe the most recent thing that they've heard. And so this is a series for all of us. I, I believe that there is a unique opportunity here. And Peter, the first pastor that there ever was, in the book of First Peter, I think gives us a great frame for this series, for this conversation. First Peter, chapter number three, verse 15. I'm reading out of the New International Version. First Peter 3.15 says this. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But, please, everybody, say but. But, do this with gentleness and respect. Do this with gentleness and respect. I think the way to frame this conversation is very simply with humility. To set apart Christ as Lord means that we, we honor him as God. He is God, we are not. And when we set him apart, we, we honor him humbly. We recognize that he is God, we are not. And, and so it's not just that we recognize or acknowledge, but we actually embrace and celebrate his lordship. The fact that he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. So we celebrate that, and that, that requires humility. By the same token, when people ask us, why do you believe what you believe? Why, why do you think that a guy rose from the dead? Why, why do you think that what the Bible says is real or true or the word of God or whatever? We have to be able to explain ourselves. We have to know not just what we believe, but why we believe it. And we have to be able to explain ourselves with gentleness and respect, to be humble, to admit right up front, I don't know it all. There's no way in the world that a human being by the name of Mac Richard can perfectly wield the word of God. I can't do it, you can't do it, but we're going to work and pray and strive and pray to read God's word, to understand God's word as he intended it with everything that we have. But we're gonna do it with gentleness and respect. That means that almost none of us will ever be on cable news. You, you don't get called to be on MSNBC or Fox News if you're gentle and respectful. If you want to be a flamethrower, you want to fire up the beast, knock yourself out. But that ain't who we're going to be. Let me, let me very quickly just tell you a few things that we will not do in this series, okay? Let me just, I just think it's important. I, I want to make sure that we don't, you know, overpromise and underdeliver. Number one, we will not prove that the Bible is true 
or that it's the word of God beyond any doubt. That will not happen in this series. Now, we will be able to give reasons for the hope that we have. We will take a look at the Bible's purpose. We'll take a look at its past. How was the Bible compiled? How did we get the Bible? 66 different books written by over 40 different authors across different centuries. How did that happen? We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about the promise of the Bible. What, what is it that the Bible's all about? But we will never be able to prove beyond any doubt that the Bible is true. To prove beyond any doubt is called certainty. And certainty never requires faith. Certainty never requires trust. Julie and I have been married for 30 years. I trust that we're going to be married for 30 years and one more day tomorrow. I don't know that. I'm not certain of that. It takes faith. It takes trust. In a relationship with God, we are required to choose to trust. Second thing we won't do, we're not going to hide from the hard stuff. We're not going to hide from the hard stuff. Can we just all admit to ourselves and to one another, there is some hard stuff in the Bible. There, there are some parts of the Bible that are tough to understand what it's saying. It's harder sometimes to understand why it's in there. And there are some things that are apparently, to human eyes, contradictions or ambiguous. Let's, let's just own that right up front. But let's also quickly say, that there's nothing ambiguous or contradictory to God who gave us this word. It's our job to figure it out. It's our job to plumb the depths. It's our job to ask his leadership, his guidance, his insight as we read through, as we pray through his word. But we're not going to hide from the hard stuff. Number three, we're not going to change what the Bible says. We're not going to change what the Bible says to make it more personally palatable or culturally cool. We're going to say this is the Bible. And we, we believe the Bible. But we also have to understand that in those hard parts, we have to learn how to deal with it. There are different types of literature in the Bible. Don't ever buy into the lie. When somebody tries to corner you, you go, well, you don't believe the Bible is literally true, do you? I don't believe the whole Bible is literal, no. Jesus said, I will destroy this temple and raise it back up in three days again. That wasn't literal. That was a figurative statement that he was making, referencing his crucifixion and resurrection. Of course the entire Bible is not literal. That's crazy talk. There's a lot of poetic imagery. There is some history there are some gospel accounts. There are some things that are literally true, but there's a lot in there that requires understanding and insight of, of different types of literature to understand the truth that God is getting at, that God is trying to communicate. And that shouldn't surprise us. When you think about what the Bible is, the Bible is a compilation from a holy, perfect God to help unholy, imperfect people understand him and how to live in a relationship with him. So we're not going to change what the Bible says. Also, we're not going to reduce the Bible to a list of do's and don'ts. We're not going to just say, this is it. Just 
do this, and you'll go to heaven. Think about that for a second. Let's go back to the love letter idea for a second. What if I went to Julie today, let's say over lunch, and I said, honey, man, 30 years, it's been awesome. But can I just tell you something? I'm tired. I need you to make me a list of just what you need me to do to make you think that I love you. If you would just give me a list that I know I can check off every day, every week, every month, whatever it is, just give me the list. I kind of think Julie might look back at me and think, oh, I don't think so. She would say, I can tell you some of the things, but other things, you're, I want you to, to engage with me. I want you to lean in. I, I, want you to, I want you to discern some things on your own and figure some stuff out based on the things that you do know. It's exhausting. <laughs> but can I tell you something? Just on a human level, as a husband, when I do that, it's worth it. It is so worth it in every way imaginable. Yes, God gives us some do's and don'ts in Scripture, but more than anything, Scripture's about relationship. If this is truly a love letter, it's a relationship. And then number five of things we won't do in this series we won't answer every question. Can't do it. We don't have that kind of time. And by that kind of time, I don't just mean on Sunday mornings. I mean in our lifetimes. Again, we're talking about finite, limited human beings trying to perceive, trying to even conceive of an infinite, holy, morally flawless God. You don't want a God that you completely understand. A God that you completely understand is no God. That's God in a box. Let me tell you something. After 30 years of marriage with Julie, believe me when I tell you, there is a lot of mystery left. And I love every bit of it. The more I understand, the more I investigate this mystery, the better it gets. And I will tell you at 54 years old, having committed my life to Christ to the best of my ability when I was seven years old, the more I engage with God, I mean personally, I'm not talking as a pastor right now, I mean personally, the more I engage with him and lean into him and pursue him and question him and ask of him, the better he is, the richer the relationship, the more profound the sweetness. Doesn't make the troubles go away. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have many troubles, but take heart, for I have overcome the world, he said. So we will have pain, we will have troubles, and yet it is through those things that God has given us his word to help us understand as much as we need and can understand in this lifetime. You and I cannot fully grasp God. Turn to your neighbor with a smile on your face to encourage and affirm with gentleness and respect. Tell your neighbor, you can't do it. You can't do it. You can't do it. 
So we, there's no way we'll answer every question. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul said, right now we see through a glass dimly, but when we get to heaven, when we are united with him in perfection, we will know as we are known. That's not going to happen in this lifetime. So there will be mysteries. There will be things that are unsure. But we are going to stand on the word of God. If you had to boil it all down, what's the purpose of the Bible? The purpose of the Bible. I think it comes down to this. To know God and love him in everything we do. To know God and to love him in everything we do. Jesus said the greatest two commandments are to love the Lord your God with everything you have, heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said all of the prophets and the commandments hang on these two commandments. So if you, if you wonder, what about the Bible? What, what, do we, what do we do with the Bible? It's to know God and love him in everything that we do. In Matthew chapter four, Jesus makes a strong, strong statement that I think is highly instructive for us as we begin this series together. In Matthew 4, Jesus has just completed 40 days of prayer and fasting by himself in the wilderness. 40, how many of y'all have ever intermittent fasted? Let me see a show of hands. You know, you wait until noon and you open your window, then you eat whatever you want to eat, and then you close it again at 6 or 10 or whatever, you know, your window happens to be. 40 days of fasting and prayer. And the Bible says that at the conclusion of this prayer season, as Jesus was exiting the wilderness, he was tempted by Satan himself. And the first thing that Satan did, the very first thing was to attack the Son of God at his appetite. He said, I know that you're tired. He said, take these stones and turn them into loaves of bread so that we could have a conversation. And as Jesus did in all of the subsequent temptations, he answered that temptation with scripture. In Matthew chapter four, verse four, look at what the Bible says. But Jesus told him, no. The scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is making a really, really clear statement here that what is true of food for our bodies is also true of Scripture for our souls. Scripture is food for our soul. And so if I can, I want to just... I want to just give you four things to think about. How do you digest Scripture? How do, you, how do you take it in and how do you digest it? Number one, focus on the main course more than the appetizers and the desserts. Focus on the main course more than the appetizers and the desserts. The main course of Scripture is Christ, Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, the Old Testament is preparation for the Messiah. The New Testament is explanation of life with the Messiah. 
The Old Testament is preparation. The New Testament is explanation. But all roads meet at Christ himself. He is the main course. Now, there are appetizers and desserts, and there are hard things, but I would challenge you, when you come to a hard place in the Bible, when you, when you read something that's tough or, or tough to understand, why is that in there? Why would God say that? Why would God do that? Go to Jesus. Ask the question, how does this move people closer to Christ? Because a lot of what you see, especially in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, it's like, I mean, it is NC-17 in a lot of places. It is, it is hard to read in some places, but you got to remember where they started. They, they didn't begin in a relationship with God. They started far away, and they were being moved toward God, kind of like you and me. <laughs> you know, and, and I think that as a church, we have to be a safe place where, where we can come together, and we're not all going to start at the finish line. We, we all are a work in progress. So as we go through this, focus on the main course more than the appetizers and the desserts. Number two, choose your chef wisely. Choose chefs wisely. Man, I will tell you, there are some incredible Bible teachers, expositors, preachers that are always a click away, a podcast away. And they can be incredibly helpful. And there are those out there who are whack-a-doodle-doo. <laughs> so choose your chef wisely. Choose your chef wisely. Make sure that whoever you listen to believes that this book comes from God. Make sure that you believe that, that who you listen to teaches and preaches with gentleness and respect. Make sure that you're choosing your chef wisely. Number three, practice portion control. Practice portion control. Do not go home and read Genesis today and try to understand all of it. Take, take smaller portions and digest that. Get some, get some help with the preparation. Practice portion control. And number four, and maybe most importantly, exercise. If all you do is take it in, you're going to get spiritually flabby. Ain't nobody got time for that. The goal is to put it into practice. Practice. In the words of the great theologian, Alan Iverson. Practice. Exercise what you learn. Do it. There are parts of Scripture that will never make sense until you do it. When you obey, when you follow Christ, when you become more like him, then the Holy Spirit will enlighten you and you will go, oh, that's why it's in there. Oh, look at this blessing that came from my obedience. Now I get it. I didn't understand before, but now I get it. It only happens many times through exercising, doing what we have taken in. I said just a second ago, there are hard parts of the Bible. There are. And we'll, 
we'll talk about how to process those, how to navigate those. But I want to remind you, always remember the message is Jesus. The message is Jesus. In John chapter 1, the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus. We honor Scripture. We learn from Scripture, but we don't worship the Bible. We worship Jesus. We lift him up as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one we follow. And in his grace and truth, he's given us the word. But he is the actual embodiment of the word. The longest chapter in the entire Bible, the longest chapter in the entire Bible, Psalm chapter 119. I've always found it fascinating that the longest chapter in the whole Bible, 176 verses. The longest chapter in the whole Bible is about the Bible. It's about the Word of God. It's about the laws of God, the precepts of God, the commands of God, the principles of God. And so as a church family, I want to invite you to do something with me this week. Don't, I'm not asking you to read all 176 verses. But this week, let's take verses 1 through 32. And every day of the week, just read and pray through five or six verses. So for, for this week, we'd be in Psalm 119, verses 1 through 6. And just read. And man, the great thing is that you can get it on your phone. You can take it with you. If you need a Bible, we will get you one. But Psalm 119, verses 1 through 6. Just, just that section tomorrow. And then by end of next Saturday, be through verse 32. So five or six verses a day. Just read it, pray through it, ask God to show you something about himself, about relationship with him as you read Psalm 119. But please remember, it's always about Jesus. It is always about the word made flesh and what it means to live in relationship with him. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. In this moment, I just want to present a question to you. 
And the question is simple. It's direct, but it's profound. Have you chosen to follow Christ? Have you chosen to follow Christ? The Word became flesh. He made His dwelling amongst us. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And then He died on the cross, taking the consequences of your sin, my sin, the sin of the entire world on Himself, so that we didn't have to bear those consequences. And then he did what we couldn't have done for ourselves and he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead with the promise, with the offer of a new life for anyone who would follow him. If you've never accepted that offer, that promise personally and definitively, then as a church, we wanna give you the opportunity to do that right now, to begin your own grand but imperfect attempt to build your life around the promise of his love letter. To just begin even now, pray. In your own words, say something like this. Say, silently talking to God, just say, Jesus, I need you. I need you and I am choosing to follow you from this moment forward. I'm choosing to set you apart as Lord of my life. I confess my sin to you. I accept, I receive your forgiveness, your grace. And I will walk with you. I pray this prayer in your name. As our heads are bowed for just another moment, I want to ask you if you would, if that was your prayer, would you just raise your hand? Just raise your hand and hold it up in the air for just a moment as a statement physically of the commitment spiritually that you just made. And know that as a church family, we celebrate that with you. We honor that in your life. And our family tradition around here is that as you put your hands down, we're going to put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.